Matthew 5, verse 43 through 48. These are God's words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your, enem- love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We look to him to bless to us the preaching of it as well. Please be seated. Not too many weeks ago, we launched into this uh, second major section, uh, or third major section, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, upon the heels of verse 20, where he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were to hear that about someone who was the most scrupulous, picky uh, law follower that you knew, uh, you might think that that is uh, a tall order indeed, a very uh, difficult thing. Uh, And indeed, when they heard it, they must have thought uh, that uh, they were being told the impossible. Uh, Now, they weren't wrong about that. They are being told the impossible, but that is what God's grace does in those uh, whom he brings to faith, which was impossible because they were dead. He made them alive. He grows them in holiness by his grace, doing that which is uh, impossible through their Uh, union with Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, So that much is true. But by the time we get to this last portion of verses 43 through 48, uh, we have hopefully learned to be a little suspicious uh, of what those uh, scribes and Pharisees teach because uh, over and over what they have taught in the synagogues uh, has been uh, incomplete Uh, or uh, flat-out wrong. And here uh, we have that which is not just wrong, but is uh, is even a lie. Verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, And so we've really left behind the idea that the scribes and Pharisees uh, are any measure uh, of what the Scripture actually teaches 
truly the fact that the Pharisees, according to Jesus, sat in the seat of Moses uh, is uh, sobering when you, uh, when you realize that up until that point, uh, as far as the theological disputes of the day went, the Pharisees were the best they had. And yet over and over again in this passage, the Lord Jesus has uh, either corrected or uh, fixed what they were teaching by saying, but I say to you. No, the scribes and the Pharisees are no measure at all. It is not now so much uh, that your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, For their righteousness has been seen to be uh, little to no righteousness at all. Uh, And so the passage uh, that is before us this morning brings us to what is actually the standard. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And praise God, uh, our Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, He is uh, uh, infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. Uh, All of his uh, perfect attributes all at once, none of them uh, in conflict, all of them holding together. Uh, God is fully who he is, Uh, And of course, who he ought to be, for he is uh, what he ought to be, and he ought to be who he is. Uh, And he now has been uh, introduced to us uh, by the Lord Jesus as our Father. Uh, Going back, uh, uh, going back even uh, all the way to verse 16, uh, let your lights shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Uh, in heaven. Uh, and here, uh, the apostle, or sorry, not the apostle, the evangelist quotes for us the Lord Jesus. Uh, oh, he's both. Uh, here, Matthew quotes for us uh, the Lord Jesus, pointing us to the character of our God uh, as the one whose character is revealed in the law. Now, that's something that we have been thinking about in all of these sections. Uh, that we are not to think of the law of God as a burden. We are not to think uh, of the law of God as uh, a sort of slavery, uh, which is uh, how they think of the law of God who say that you uh, that Christians are no longer under obligation to obey it. They think of God's law as a slavery and a burden that we have been delivered from. They are not so gracious as they think they sound. Because they are saying that God's commandments are a heavy weight that must be carried. They are actually very much like the scribes and the Pharisees. They've just come to a different conclusion of what to do with that heavy weight that must be carried. No, the Lord Jesus has been setting before us his own character and his character as the full and final revelation of God. Uh, his father's character. Uh, And now, uh, as we heard uh, in our first sermons in this section, now we are uh, prepared and helped by the Lord Jesus teaching the law well to say, truly, this is the royal law. This is the law that describes what our king is like. 
This is the law that describes what his subjects must be like. This is the law of the kingdom. Uh, The Lord Jesus, uh, having given at Sinai uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, and still uh, his law is the same today. Uh, But not only the royal law, but the law of liberty. Having been liberated from ourselves, having been liberated uh, from the guilt of our sin, having been liberated from being bound to our sin and bondage to our sin, enslaved to our sin, we are liberated to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, to be children of our Heavenly Father, to obey his holy commandments. Uh, It describes what liberty looks like, and the more that we, by grace, obey the law of God, the more we realize how free the Lord Jesus has made us. Uh, And praise God, praise God that uh, he has freed us to live as children of our Heavenly Father. Uh, And therefore, we must leave no holiness out. We must leave no holiness out. He says uh, at the conclusion of our passage this morning, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Are all aspects of God's righteousness present and full uh, and uh, exact and rich all the time? Absolutely they are. Well, this is what we must be like uh, in order to enter heaven. And this is what we shall be like for the father who has chosen and called and adopted us in the beloved son uh, and has prepared for us that inheritance that we can't lose that we we're just hearing about uh, in uh, in the Sabbath school and that we began you remember uh, this chapter this sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ the very first thing when he had sat down you remember taking the preaching position of the synagogue, and they saw uh, that he had sat down, and those in whom he had already done this work of grace in their hearts, uh, eager to hear the Lord Jesus preach to them, went, and he began his sermon by speaking to them of the blessedness that is theirs, that is sure, uh, and that was certain to come into a final and forever fullness. Uh, And so... We must leave no holiness out, and the Lord will leave no holiness out. Uh, Praise God. Uh, If you are a true child, as Hebrews 12 says, he will not let you, uh, he will not let you lack that holiness that is necessary to see the Lord. No, he has devoted himself to treating you as a true and legitimate son, and even whatever chastenings are necessary for your sanctification, Whatever uh, is necessary entirely, he will make you holy. Uh, And so uh, he comes now to focus uh, in this last portion in verses 43 through 48 on love for our enemies, love for our enemies, that we might not have uh, an incomplete and superficial uh, uh, similarity to our heavenly father, uh, the way the tax collectors do, but that we might have a full, a complete, a perfect holiness like our Heavenly Father's own perfect holiness. Uh, And so uh, he 
begins in verse 43 uh, by drawing attention to one of the worst abuses of Scripture that the scribes and Pharisees uh, had engaged in, uh, and that was the hermeneutics of hate. The hermeneutics of hate. So that's the first thing we'll see in verse 43. How, uh, how did they come to justify hatred, uh, their hatred of, uh, of other people made in the image of God? Uh, how did they come to justify that from the Bible? So first, the hermeneutics of hate. Uh, second, uh, we'll see the, uh, this uh, great command uh, in the beginning of verse 44, the love of your enemies. Uh, and then we'll finish in the third place, verse uh, 44, by seeing that this love must be more than a feeling. Uh, and then finally, uh, as we've already begun to, uh, to hear about in the introduction, uh, we'll see in verses 45 through 47, that in loving our enemies the way that is described here in verse 44, we show our family resemblance. We show our family resemblance. So first then, hermeneutics of hate. We have several times uh, seen uh, that the scribes and Pharisees were at very least incomplete uh, in their interpretation of God's word. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. And yet he shows that uh, although uh, that much was true uh, and well spoken, uh, yet the Lord requires uh, even our very, uh, our very heart. Uh, and so... Uh, not even being angry with our brother without a cause, and not even letting that anger uh, overflow from our mouths. Uh, and so he had filled out the sixth commandment beyond what they had been taught uh, in the synagogues. And then you have heard that it was said to those of old, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, and similarly then, uh, the Lord uh, uh, the Lord uh, requiring of us not just uh, the action, uh, but of the heart, recognizing that what is necessary is a holiness that is uh, throughout the whole man, uh, and that uh, sin is not to be indulged to a point, but hated and killed and destroyed. Uh, and then, uh, furthermore, it has been said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate uh, of divorce, which wasn't uh, exactly what was said and how they had twisted scripture because they did not love marriage for the Lord's sake the way we ought to love marriage for the Lord's sake. Uh, and then, uh, even worse than uh, the twisting, at least, of it even worse. Uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. Uh, and taking several passages then together, as we saw uh, in that sermon, uh, but not only uh, uh, not only 
justifying, uh, breaking uh, certain oaths, but indeed creating an entire hierarchy uh, of things that you could swear upon and you could lie uh, a little bit more as you went uh, along down uh, the hierarchy and the wickedness of that. Uh, and then last week, using, uh, using a text to mean exactly the opposite uh, of what it meant. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Lord giving good laws for justice to be exercised by the civil magistrate and they who should have been delivered from taking personal revenge by recognizing that God put the sword uh, into uh, the hands of the magistrate uh, rather than being delivered from personal vengefulness, uh, use that very text, uh, which appears several times, to justify it. Well, here, here we have a word study from hell. Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, no wonder that that, that man who had rightly answered when Jesus says, how, uh, how do you read it? And he says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. No wonder he wanted to know who his neighbor was because he was hating his enemies just like he had learned in synagogue growing up from the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet God in his mercy was afflicting that man in his conscience. He knew that he shouldn't hate his enemies, even though, even though his, uh, his teachers at church taught him to hate his enemies. Yet God would not uh, leave him alone. And so he wanted, it says, to justify himself. And he wants, and therefore he asks, wants to know, who is my neighbor? Well, that gives us a window, doesn't it? Uh, into what they were doing here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, and praise God, if you're using uh, New King James, you can see how they italicize where it's quoting from the Old Testament. And you can see, you shall love your neighbor is italicized. Why isn't and hate your enemy italicized? Well, because the Lord never commanded them to hate their enemy. But how easy it is to come to the Bible with our fleshliness, with our sinfulness, looking for justification to think and feel and say and do what we want to do, not what God wants to do. And so they say, aha, it says you shall love your neighbor. Uh, and so they uh, they dive into this word neighbor and they see how uh, neighbor, at least in the Old Testament context, often meant brother and neighbors are different than strangers. And you were to love strangers too and strangers, uh, you know, the strangers dwelt among you. Uh, but uh, really this word neighbor is the opposite of the word enemy. And so we should do the opposite with our enemy, what we do with our neighbor. So if we're supposed to love our neighbor, then with the opposite of the neighbor, the enemy, we should do the opposite of love. So love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And you have very 
Bible-based sounding sermons then at synagogue on hating your enemy. And this is what the the Jews the, the, at that time, perhaps Jesus himself uh, growing up and his parents taking him uh, faithfully to the public worship of God and hearing men teach in God's worship from God's word to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so this way of reading the Bible is, of course, from hell. Because the father uh, of lies, just as we heard uh, when, we were, when we were considering the us, uh, the devil is the father of lies. Uh, and therefore, that is from the evil one in uh, verse 37. And the devil is the murderer from the beginning. And so here, that which is actually uh, satanic, this, this hatred, this murder in the heart that satisfies the flesh was what they were hearing preached. But this forgets what we were, what every one of us come into this world as, even if you come into this world in a covenant home. You still come into this world by nature a child of wrath. Even if you came into this world in a covenant home, you still came into this world dead in your trespasses and sins. You're called saint. You're set apart. You're holy unto God in that covenant home. But you're not a saint in your heart. You're satanic in your heart when you come into this world. Now, mom and dad... We will call you, and your church will call you what Jesus calls you. We call you saint. We call you Christian. We bring you to church. We use the means that he has given us. We read and, and pray and sing and worship with you uh, at home and uh, day by day and in the public worship week to week. But we do the, those things knowing that God must work a miracle in you and doing them in good hope that God will work that miracle in you. And yet we must always, therefore, be suspicious of our sinful flesh and looking to God and depending upon Him and comparing Scripture with, with Scripture. Read uh, the Bible. And if we do that, with respect to this word enemy, the idea of enemy, God often in the prophets announced to his people that they had made enemies of themselves to him, even corporately. But here is what God does for his enemies. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are to love our enemies because God has loved his enemies and that was every one of us. If we read love your neighbor and decide that that means hate your enemy, we are forgetting that we were those enemies. That we did deserve the anger, the wrath, and yes, the hatred of God. And yet he has loved us and given Christ for us. 
so that we will see the greatness of God's grace toward us and that we will love those who are our enemies as well as Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And uh, Stephen, using his last breaths, may it not be charged against them. Paul, for those who had so many times beaten him or stoned him or given him the lashes holding just what was thought to be the death blow back, having continual grief and in his heart, continual sorrow and grief in his heart for them. Romans chapter 9 and his prayer to God, desire of his heart that they would be saved. Romans chapter 10. And so abusing scriptures that should sober us often robs us of the gospel. Praise God, psalm singing is being recovered in many of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches. And praise God, imprecatory psalms, cursed psalms are being recovered. We're going to sing one ourselves. Uh, Again, uh, 109a, a favorite of the congregation. Uh, But there is a, a, a false hermeneutic that comes to such psalms desiring to indulge the flesh. And rather than singing with the psalmist who says, they are giving hatred in return for my love. And they are accusing me despite the fact that I'm praying for them. And so he's singing a psalm of the sober and weighty and great wrath of God against their sin, the sins of those who are treating him as enemies. And he's singing a psalm that talks about the exactness of the justice and even asks God that his justice would be exact. But he's singing that psalm as one who knows that he has been saved by grace and that one of the things that shows the difference that God's gracious salvation has made is that he loves the enemy who hates him and he prays for the enemy who accuses him. You see, this is not some new thing that Jesus is, uh, that Jesus is teaching here at the end of Matthew chapter five. This is something that God had taught them all the way through the scripture and how weighty is the grace of God to you, dear Christian, who know that you were his enemy. You were his enemy and he loved you and he loved you. And so we see not just the difference then between uh, between or we, we see not only the hermeneutics of hate, the way uh, they twisted the scripture uh, to conclude that uh, that you should hate your enemy. But now we see Jesus's hermeneutics, the hermeneutics of Christ teaching us to love our enemies. Now, this is what Jesus was here to do in the first place. And we've made reference already, but. If you have your Bible out, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And not starting, uh, not starting from verse 8, but starting from verse 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, uh, 
If you have listened to the preaching in this section through Romans, you remember that he's using the language there of the drink offering, gushed out all at once, uh, except for there is no all uh, uh, for the all at once. There's no exhausting the source of this one, uh, of this drink offering, because it is the love of God that is poured out uh, in old translations like uh, shed abroad, uh, trying to capture the richness of this. Now, what is that love of God that the Holy Spirit convinces us of? As you live your Christian life, as you uh, as you hope in uh, the glory of God and uh, you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and you rejoice even in your afflictions uh, because you have this hope, what is... Uh, that love of God that the Holy Spirit pours out into your hearts uh, that makes you say, I am certainly going to know God and see his glory. Uh, These afflictions are certainly for my good. Well, it's the fact that you were his enemy and he loved you by giving his son for you. That's what the, that's what in verse five, the Holy Spirit is continually reminding and convincing us of. For, for verse six, when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, so, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, and notice the Apostle Paul is saying this, he was a covenant child. If there was ever a covenant child, it was he. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life? And then he ties off the rejoicing in God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Don't you see that God who has every right, and he does, in the, with respect to our sinfulness, he does hate the wicked. And he was hating us. And yet with respect to election and with respect even to common grace, there are two different kinds of loves there. You, you have to be careful. You have to distinguish. You can't just say, uh, does God love or hate the reprobate? Well, the answer is yes. He hates them as sinners. And he even hates them with that, with that decree of hatred. E- Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated. But he also loves them by this continual pouring out of goodness upon them. And so don't be sloppy and use, use one word uh, to mean the same thing in three different aspects. Now, for the believer, when you are by nature a child of wrath, and when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you are still an enemy, as we just heard in Romans 5, verse 10. 
And yet, in that common grace way in which he pours out continual goodness, of course, he was still making his sun to rise upon you and his rain, sending rain for you. And even in the decreeing way, he has loved you in the Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ, from before the world began. And so this was what Jesus was here to do in the first place, was to love enemies. Uh, One more text on this and we'll move on. John 3, verse 14 through 17. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the people who were dying uh, of uh, those venomous uh, snake bites in the wilderness. Uh, they were dying justly and rightly as enemies of God, weren't they? Uh, and so the Lord has given His Son. That was uh, that was a a symbol, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. And he says that uh, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him and, you know, quite literally don't get sidetracked theologically there, that the ones believing in him uh, should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Deserves condemnation, doesn't it? Every single one of us but that the world through him might be saved. And so God himself, why will you die, O Israel? Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? But rather that he should turn from his sins and live. We have God who loves his enemies. Now you and I do not rightly pour out our wrath, The wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Vengeance does not belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. There is a expression of the vengeance of God and those who have been given authority and have been given uh, not just uh, the prerogative, but the duty to punish uh, under God. And, And yet they cannot cast the body and the soul into hell. So if God, who rightly will pour out his wrath upon all who are who do not uh, uh, do not believe in God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God, who will rightly do that out of love for those whom he is saving, if he is reserving his vengeance until that day, if he, out of love for those whom he is saving, is even showing goodness to vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, willing to make his power known, willing to display his his wrath uh, upon them, says Romans chapter 9. He endures them patiently. Why? So that he can make the riches of his glory known upon vessels prepared for mercy then you and I, to whom that wrath and that vengeance don't even belong. We're supposed to leave that to him, remember, uh, from last week's portion. Ought we not to love our enemy and be willing to do good to all, 
God knows which ones are elect and which ones aren't. He could very well have withheld his son or withheld his reign, but if he did so, they would perish immediately, wouldn't they? And so if our God is willing for the sake of the showing of the riches of his glory on vessels prepared for mercy, even to show this goodness to the reprobate, to those who will never believe, to those whom he has ordained to pass over so that they receive for their sin justly and fully the wrath of God forever, then ought not we, out of love for God and imitation of him, and out of love for those who like us, and we don't know who they are. It's a wonderful and glorious discovery with the angels of heaven, with one sinner repents, that we rejoice with all of heaven over that repentance. But out of love for those whom the Lord is going to save and is going to use as a vessel of mercy for making the riches of his glory known, such as the Apostle Paul. And how marvelous that God saved Paul. Shall we not love all of our enemies? Knowing first of all, that as far as we know, as far as God has given you to know, they may potentially be saved. And just as Jesus and Stephen and Paul, you should desire that salvation. You should grieve over their lost condition. You should pray to God from the heart for them. And even those who will not come to faith, even if you could know that, should you not imitate your heavenly Father in doing good to them anyway for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of those believers who will be benefited by your loving even your enemies. God loves his enemies for the sake of the elect whom he is redeeming. If it's not beneath God, then how can it be beneath you? Dear Christian, should you not love your enemy for the same reason? And so this is what Jesus was here to do in the first place. It is the great display of the love of God, Jesus Christ dying for God's enemies. This isn't just a small thing that caps off Christian character. This isn't just the last, uh, the last imperfection to, to be, uh, to be remedied so that we may be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. This is the crown jewel of Christian character. This is what makes Christians most like their Heavenly Father. This is how the Holy Spirit produces in us conformity to Jesus that shows us to be adopted children like the only begotten Son. And therefore, this love is more than a feeling. It it ought to be so. We've talked about uh, the... Uh, the grief and sorrow of our heart and the desire of our heart for their salvation. Uh, but this must be more than a feeling. And uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus very wisely and kindly helps us. Because if he just said, but I say to you, love your enemies. For if you 
uh, that, sorry, but I say to you, love your enemies that you may be sons of your father in heaven. How easily would we in our remaining fleshliness say, well, sure, I am to love them theoretically and generally, but there are these specific ones doing specific things. And perhaps, uh, perhaps we might convince ourselves uh, that, uh, that we love them uh, based on uh, feeling or, uh, or whatever we would justify in our hearts and minds. But he actually talks now about our mouths. And he talks now about our hearts. And he talks about our time. He says, bless those who curse you. They say all sorts of nasty things about you. They denounce you. They condemn you. But you watch your mouth with respect to them. You speak kindly to them. We can see the, uh, the application of this word bless in verse 44 uh, in the uh, further detail in verse, seven, verse 47. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? I'm sure you know people. God help you that it wouldn't be you yourself and, and bring you to repentance if it is. I'm sure you, you know people who there are those who they can't speak a kind word to. Uh, they avoid them altogether or they only speak crossly. They, uh, they will not greet them. They will not speak favorably to them. They will not, uh, they will not wish them well. They will not inquire after them. But if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors say so in verse 47, explaining in, uh, in large part what it means to bless those who curse you, to use your mouth in kind service to people who hate you, to people who say evil of you. Now, this does not mean that you call evil good and good evil. That, of course, is wicked, and God forbids that. But it does mean that you use your mouth in kindness to do good to those who are cursing you. Speaking of doing good, you're also, therefore, to use your hand. Do good to those who hate you. Now we can see what some of that good is in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, of course. If your enemy is hungry... What are you supposed to do? Give him something to eat. If, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. God has wrath. God has vengeance. If that enemy remains an enemy and does not come to faith in Jesus Christ, then their having sinned against you and hated you is going to, is going to be repaid as done unto the Lord Jesus himself. You cannot produce if it, were, if it were right, if it were permissible, you could not produce enough hatred or hostility in your heart. But it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God to pour out that wrath. And so, do good. Use your hands. Now, these things aren't really difficult to understand. They're just difficult to do. 
Children, you know exactly what you should do, don't you? As soon as mom or dad start talking, maybe you thought I was going to say give you a command. You know what to do then too. But you are to honor your father and your mother. That's more than just obedience. As soon as you hear that mommy is saying something, you stop what you're doing. You turn your head. You point your eyes at her because God has granted to you to have your ears attached to the same head. And your ears will telescope because mom is speaking or dad is speaking. It's not difficult to know what God says to do in that situation. You just find it difficult to do it because you're a sinner. And so your gracious and merciful God says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. By his grace, he will produce in you what is right. And so you honor your uh, your mother and you honor your father and you obey your parents. Well, dear Christian, it is not difficult to know what to do with an enemy. If someone is your enemy, love them. That's not complicated. It's just hard, impossible. But it comes by the same grace of the king who has taken you from an enemy to a subject and has made you a citizen of his kingdom and has brought you into a family in which in Jesus you are adopted by the Father and indwelt by the Spirit. Someone says nasty things about you. You immediately have an assignment from God, don't you? How can I use my lips to do kindness to that person? If someone hates you, how can I use my hands and my feet to do kindness to that person? And perhaps there is some gentleness here. For those who spitefully use you. Now, praise God, we're praying from one psalm and, and singing from one psalm in a, uh, after the sermon in which uh, the, uh, the psalmist, in that case, David, the anointed as a type of Christ, is being spitefully used. But many of you have been spitefully used as well. It happens even within the church, even within families. And the Lord gives you a, a, an initial assignment here that will help you with the love and that will help you with the mouth and that will help you with the hand. Pray. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Pray for those who persecute you. Now you've got a second persecution assignment. Remember what you were supposed to do if you're persecuted from earlier in the chapter. First, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Oh, praise God. How uh, obedience to that instruction, seeing the persecution in the right way, enjoying your being united to, uh, to Jesus Christ and, uh, and identified with the living God as uh, is actually being worked out and being persecuted. You'd be like those apostles who obeyed that command, uh, uh, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. But then you also have an assignment with respect to the one who is doing the persecuting. 
so that you don't rejoice as a scoffer, you don't rejoice in arrogance, but you rejoice in Godward love that also expresses itself in enemy love. And you pray for them. And praise God, prayer is a means of grace, isn't it? It's only done rightly in union with Christ. It's only done rightly in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we take our cues and instruction and prayer from where? From the Bible. And so as we pray from the Bible in union with Jesus and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, what does he do? Well, the Holy Spirit makes us more like the Son so that we come more and more to resemble children of the Father. And we are the more enabled to love and to bless and to do good. I dare say, if you have been spitefully used and persecuted, first give yourself to prayer as it's divided out in in this verse 44. Lift your heart unto God. And among the things you pray, you pray for yourself. You pray for yourself and you enjoy that God loves you and that he's joined you to his son and that he's given you his spirit and Pretty soon you realize and remember that you are the enemy and now you have this other enemy who has spitefully used you and persecuted you. And now you're enjoying this from God and you're helped by God to cry out for them. Give them, O Lord, to be turned from their sin. Forgive them for they know know not what they do. Do not charge this against them. Oh, Lord, my heart's desire and prayer to you for them is that they may be saved. Loving our enemies is more than a feeling. And praise God, it's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling from our Father as well. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, we have, we have noted many times from this pulpit and in our devotionals and our uh, going through the Word of God together that providence is personal. And praise God if you know Him as the one who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for you, then as you personally receive all the other providence, you say, how will he not, and, or, or he most certainly is, together with him, freely giving me all things? Romans 8.32, or, or Ephesians 1.11, that we were predestined, predestined to be inheritors according to the, uh, to the will of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Forgive me, I'm forgetting the exact wording there. Ephesians 1.11 In Him that is in Christ also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And you say, you say, He has, 
He has purposed to make me an heir. And that's why I have obtained my inheritance. And, and since he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, I can be certain that everything that happens everywhere all the time has as its design to bring me into the full receipt and enjoyment of my inheritance. Praise God, providence is personal. And so whatever happens in the nation and whatever happens at your workplace and whatever comes up on the labs or the MRI uh, and the news in the doctor's office and whatever news you get uh, when the phone call comes, it is always aiming at God's glory in your inheriting him himself in Jesus Christ. Providence is personal. But don't you see that God's providence even to the wicked is also personal? It's not just the sun rises and the rain falls. It's he makes the sun rise and he sends the rain. And you notice it's not just personal, it's even possessive. He makes his sun rise. It belongs to him. It's for his glory. And he is personally doing good, even to enemies. Now, many of those enemies, many of those enemies are receiving that not just in common grace love, but many of them are receiving it in adopting love. And so though they be currently hated with respect to their sin, they are currently beloved, even with respect to, to the decree. But you see God personally doing good to them, personally doing good to them. Now, we have some children who are not uh, very worldly wise in our family, uh, at least two of them. The way we describe it is they never met a stranger uh, and they need to grow in wisdom. But the other children... One of the ways that they have learned when someone is safe is by watching dad or watching mom and listening to the conversation. And, uh, and they take their cue for how to treat someone from mom and dad. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that you need to train your, your children well and disciple them well. Because when your kid blurts something nasty out about somebody in public, you are going to have a very difficult time convincing them that you're not saying those nasty things about them in private. Well, our Heavenly Father is making His Son to rise on His enemies. And He is sending rain to give life, to shower life even upon his enemies. Common grace goodness is extended to all, even those who not only are hated with respect to their current uh, condition outside of Christ, but even with respect to the decree and God is not ordained to save them and he is not going to do so. But your father is still doing them good and extending to them even the offer of his son, though they will reject him. 
We are not hyper-Calvinists. We don't believe that you only offer the gospel to the elect. How in the world could you do that anyway? How would you know? But since the decreeing to save them and the saving them are not ours, let us not trouble ourselves with that which belongs to God, trying to figure out, am I loving this enemy with future brotherly love? No, I'm loving him with enemy love and praying that God would make him a brother. And if God makes him a brother, I'll love him with brotherly love. This is not saying treat everyone as a Christian or even treat everyone as a pre-Christian. Treat them as an enemy. You know what Christians do with their enemies? They love them. They do good to them. They bless them. They pray for them. Why? Because that's what Father does. That's what Father does. You know, if you hate your enemies then how do you know that you're not a tax collector? Or let's put it a little more pointedly since the Lord Jesus puts it pointedly. If you hate your enemies, you can't know that you're not a tax collector. We're not talking about that you're not a person who gathers money for the government. That was code language for the most despised sort of sinner you could be. And praise God, the, the one who is recording this gospel was a tax collector. Such were some of you, right? But if you hate your enemies, you can't know that you're a child of God because you sure look like the same sort of child of the devil as anyone else. You say, oh, but I love, uh, I love my, uh, I love those who love me and I love, I greet my brethren. Well, yeah, just like all those other children of the devil. It is especially in loving our enemy. It is especially in blessing those who curse us. It is especially in praying for those who spitefully use you that you you do that. And one of the things that you come away with is look at how merciful God is to me that he's producing something in me that I know didn't come from me. He's producing a resemblance to him that could only have come from Christ. That could only have come by His Spirit. So you don't do it because you think you can. You listen to this sermon and you say, oh, I don't think that I can do that. Well, of course not. How could it function as something that showed you your sonship to God if you could do it in yourself? But it functions that way precisely because you can't. Precisely because the grace of Christ can and will in you. Oh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are glorified in saving. Praise God we were able to have that particular Sabbath school lesson to come into this particular sermon. How the triune God is glorified in saving And how much then they are glorified by your loving your enemies. Do you not love the God who loved you when you were an enemy? And now that you're a child, makes you to know that love and his spirit is continually pouring out in your hearts the knowledge that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. 
When I was his enemy, I was reconciled to God through the death of his son. And his spirit is continually reminding you of that and applying that to you. And we love him because he first loved us. And we want to bring him glory. How can we bring him glory? Well, here is one of the great ways in which you can bring your God and Savior glory. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven who makes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Praise God, we get to love him by loving our enemies. And if you lacked motivation up until that point, may the Spirit drive that home to you. Love on your enemy is never lost because it first and foremost comes from love for your God who will be glorified in your loving your enemy even if your enemy is completely unmoved by it. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we confess that we have often been those who indulged our fleshliness, even singing and praying your word with respect to enemies. We did not make right distinctions. And so we thank you and praise you for displaying yourself most of all in your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for loving us when we were enemies. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would bless to us what we have heard. Not only that he would write the truth on our hearts, but that he would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that we might come into that fellowship and be with Christ and be like Christ to behold his glory and to love his glory because you loved him before the world began. We pray, Lord, that out of your love for your Son, you would make us to be like him, that he would be glorified in his church, even now in the earth when enemies uh, remain. Oh Lord, help us not to lose this time before the last enemy is destroyed and we no longer have the opportunity to show this kind of love. Give us to glorify you in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.